What a beautiful picture of the heavenly world. I think one of the successes of a, a good worship service, you know you're successful when you, when you, when you have a sense of heaven, <laughs> have a sense of God's throne, His presence, to use words and songs, thoughts and images to bring us to God's throne. Jonathan Edwards wrote a resolve. He resolved to endeavor to obtain for himself as much happiness in the other world as I possibly can. With all the power, might, vigor, and vehemence, yea, violence I'm capable of or can bring myself to exert in any way that can be thought of. What a great resolve to have as much happiness as possible in the world to come. And so images, songs, prayers like we've just prayed is eternally good for our soul. That's why we meet together. To be honest, I couldn't have done that in my, my sunroom at home. <laughs> you know, it just I need you and we need one another to be able to share together God's word and to provoke our hearts uh, for him. With that thought, I just want to remind you this evening, we are going, or this afternoon, we are going to uh, work on our Love Out Loud project uh, at 3.30 in Mingo Creek. Uh, and so we're going to be out in the community uh, doing some projects. So if you come, wear your Love Out Loud shirt uh, so that uh, we can all have the, the same message across the board at, at 3.30. Uh, so just want to remind you about that. If you'll turn in your Bibles to the book of Titus, chapter 1, uh, verse 5. Uh, five through nine is our focus this morning. It's just really interesting when you consider heaven, that even now, that in God's throne there are elders and creatures who are declaring over and over and over again, worthy is the Lamb who is slain, and all glory, power, and might be unto him. And to know that's going on, and yet here we are. Right here, walking among people who do not do that. That was the great contradiction that Isaiah felt when he had a vision of God. And he said, woe is me, for I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell among a people of unclean lips. And here we are as a church, being as a forward operating base of heaven in this world. You get that? A church is to be a forward operating base of heaven into a hostile world. So consequently, it matters how the church is to be set in order, the character therein. This was very much the thought of, of Paul as he's writing to Titus in Crete, uh, evidently a region that Paul had only spent just a little bit of time, and for whatever reasons we don't know, he had to leave before leaders were set up. And there were some things that remained to be done uh, in the region of Crete, among the churches there. And so Paul writes to Titus, addresses that very situation, that very uh, question of leadership. And also you'll find that Titus is highly concerned with how we conduct ourselves as a church. A lot of the verses pertain to that question. Very practical, how do we behave? 
chances are, if you read this book, you're going to find your, your category addressed uh, as a church. And I think the thought is to remember that we are affording operating base of heaven into a hostile world. And so there are leaders and there are essential qualities of leaders that must be placed in an evil world. If you read the context of, of Titus 1, you'll find as we read verses 5 through 9, these qualities brought out regarding elders. And then verse 10, he gives a reason. Why, is it, why does it matter that these qualities are to be there among leaders in the church? Verse 10, because there are many insubordinate, empty talkers, deceivers. In other words, leaders in a church ought to have these qualities because there's much evil in the world you live in. I uh, was thinking about that uh, yesterday. I was, this past weekend, uh, we had one of the church attenders uh, loan me their, um, he had a couple kayaks, and, and so he was very uh, uh, encouraging, wanted me to, to do these, and I was always up and open for things like that, and so we were uh, camping, and uh, we were in the lake uh, using these kayaks, and it was very good, you know, kayaking in, in a lake is not that bad. Uh, in fact, I had one of the little uh, little boys were there with me, and we were just kind of cruising, going where everyone. I was thinking, man, it's amazing how fast you can go. And so I finished up, and we we're uh, coming home. And you know, the thought occurred to me: I've, I've got these 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 kayaks already in my car. This would be as good a time as any for me to go to the river and do this. Uh, it just happened where I had some time alone, and and because uh, I was by myself, I thought, well, you know, I'm gonna. Uh, I, I can't have someone uh, carpool me. I'm just going to go and, and pitch down at a pool road, and I'm going to go upstream and see how far I can go upstream and then then turn around. And so, I was, you know, Noose River, you look on that, and you think, I, I don't know if what you think, if you think anything when you look over Noose River when you cross one of the bridges. Every time I see it, I think, man, I love just be floating down that river. It just looks so inviting. It's so easy. I mean, it's just it's almost still, some, most of the cases. And so I, I found that to be case as I was going. And then I, I didn't realize, though, that uh, I've forgotten that there's this little bit, just a little bit of rapids uh, on uh, the Noose River in between uh, Pool Road and 264. I found out that there's rapids there. And I'm thinking, you know, I'm, I, it's a lot harder to go upstream when there's all these rocks here. Uh, and where before I was zipping along, I'm just going as hard as I can and I'm just moving inch by inch. And I'm thinking, I'm glad there's no children here with me. It's, it's not going to work. And after a while, I kind of get up to the rock and, and make, pass, uh, make it up the, the rapids. And I just have to rest. Thinking, man, this is, this is requiring something out of me that wasn't demanded in the lake. All right? Why? Because I'm going upstream. I'm going upstream in faster water. So I was thinking about this in, in Scripture and what's required of people living in the last days. We've learned in 2 Timothy that in the last days, there is going to be an expectation of greater evil, less love. Jesus said that lawlessness will abound, therefore the love of many will grow cold. And so there's going to be less love, more evil, more deceiving. It's just the nature of the world we live in. And if you're going to be a Christian leader, if you're going to be a church leader in that time, do not be surprised if you're working hard and it seems like not much happening. There is more demanded of church leaders in a church 
going upstream in the tide of today. That's just simply the case. If we were promoting tolerance across the board and did not define sin, no problem. If we were promoting love one another without repentance, no problem whatsoever. But the fact of the matter is that we're not just promoting loving one another. We're also teaching there is such a thing as sin and there must be repentance. There must be forgiveness. And we've got to turn from that to turn to Jesus Christ. That makes us paddling upstream here in this day. So for that reason, there are certain essential qualities. And so let's read together Titus chapter 1, verse 5 through verse 9. Let's stand as we read this together. Is this being God's word? This is why I left you in Crete. So you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife, and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. For an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospital, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught. So that he may be able to give instruction and sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. You may be seated. So in this verse five, Titus has his mission as well as we have the purpose of this letter. It is to set in order or put what remained into order. I would argue that how that happens is the next phrase of appointing elders in every town as I directed you. The word there to uh, to put what remained into order, the root word for it is the same word where we get uh, titles like orthodontist, orthopedic. The idea behind it is that uh, really setting bones in right order. And so that's the kind of image That's given to us with this this grammar, this word. And so Titus's job, and our job still today, is that we have the bones. But we need to make sure that they're put in right order that reflects who God is and his working of the gospel. And so it's, it's important to kind of pay attention to what Titus is about to do in the Paul's instructions to Titus. That these are helpful clues to us as a church in this day and age. How do we set our teeth right? How do we set our, our bones right to be orthodontists or orthopedic spiritually uh, for our church? And so he says that he points elders in every town. Uh, we don't know the process of how Titus did that. That's not given to us. We would seem to uh, understand that he involved the church in whatever capacity. Uh, that's just not given to us. Uh, but interesting enough that when you see the church in the New Testament, you usually see churches equal one city. In a city will be a church. New Testament language uh, Speaks of it. Just, I want to challenge you to kind of look in, in Acts and look in uh, the, the letters, look in Revelation, and see how the language goes. That when you see a city, you see a singular church. And that's just uh, 
how they seem to be organized in that daytime. I was thinking about that as I was uh, reading Revelation this past week. Uh, in, in the book of Revelation, uh, we see an interesting insight in chapter 1 of how God sees the churches today. And in Revelation, remember it's first addressed to seven what? Seven churches. And so those are the original uh, addressees of this. It obviously applies across the board to churches today. Uh, but you see in Revelation chapter 1, he says, verse 11, write that what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches. And he lists out seven cities. Uh, and then this vision is just imagine is powerful to me. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. And on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe, and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. If you want to imagine what Jesus looks like today, I, I encourage you not to look at the, the Jewish pictures that we might have of Jesus of Nazareth. But the picture is here in Revelation chapter 1, what he looks like today. And it is a lot more regal, isn't it? A lot more power to this. And then he says in verse 16, In his right hand he held the seven stars. And from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his voice was like the sun shining, or his face was like the sun shining in full strength. When I saw him, John falls as though he's dead. And he says, fear not, I'm the first and the last, the living one. I died. Behold, I'm life forever, and I have the keys of death and Hades. Write, therefore, the things that you've seen, those that are, are and those that are take place after this. Verse 20, as for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven gold lampstands, the seven stars are the angels, are the messengers of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. When I think about this image, it just lets me know that we are as a lampstand around Jesus. And the messengers are held in the hands of Jesus. They're brought by God. They're sent away by God. Churches are lightened by Jesus and the Holy Spirit, and they are snuffed out and removed by Jesus. When I see this image, it lets me know not, not as we just see in flesh and blood today, but to see from heavenly eyes when we envision the throne of God, understand green pines, we are there. We are there as a, a lampstand before him, around him. He's surrounding us and in us. And so have a vision of the heavenly realm as we talk about the practical aspect of this. Because the practical outworking must flow from the heavenly realm. That we will pray, Lord, as it is in heaven, let it be done here on earth. And so he says, appoint elders in every town as I direct you. So the idea is that the elders were appointed from within the church. These were people the church knew. A little bit different model than bringing someone in 
But they were here among us, with us, and now appointed, recognized by the church, appointed by uh, Paul's uh, messenger, Titus, as elders. So there were churches per city. Thus we have a, a plural group. So that a church is not dominated by a personality as much. But there is a group of people with a leader among them. The messenger that is of the Lord. And he directs in this. We see this carried out in Acts 14 verse 21 through 23. I think Paul is kind of teaching what he exemplified in Acts 14. And this is what it says there. When they preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples... They returned to Lystra and Iconium and Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them them to continue in the faith, and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. And when they appointed elders for them in every church, with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. So in that region, Paul uh, appointed a group of people we don't know how many but they were elders in every church and so this is a a model he exemplified and now he's asking titus to carry out so with that said let's move from that to who are these people what are the characters that are essential verse six is a general statement we see it repeated a a second time this is very similar to first timothy chapter three i think they're meant to be parallel Uh, he says simply if anyone is above reproach or the a translation might say blameless and so i think it is a general encompassing statement that this person tends to make right what's wrong as best as as they're able to do they make right what is wrong and then he talks about specific areas if we would look at verse six together uh, i think that you see a category of marriage and family in this evil world titus of crete that you're in appoint leaders who are blameless in their marriage and their family the husband of one wife uh, is is the idea and so there's some definitions of what that may mean husband of one wife Uh, does that mean that you have only one marriage at a time certainly at least it means that uh, which rules out polygamy and bigamy and other things like that Uh, and then some would say well maybe this is one marriage in a lifetime one marriage in a lifetime. The only problem with that is that Scripture seems to, to express that when you have a deceased spouse, not only does it allow another marriage, it actually recommends another marriage as found in 1 Timothy 5, verse 14, regarding widows of a certain age. And so uh, we would say because of that that it can't mean just that, that there's one marriage in a lifetime. Uh, but it does speak a little bit to the issue of what we believe about divorce, what, what is being said and what's not being said. And the point I want to bring out uh, in this passage is that it is a characteristic, not just a status, all right, a status that you've had a marriage in your lifetime, but a characteristic as all the other qualifications are in Titus chapter 1 and 1 Timothy 3. They're not statuses such as you're our only child, okay, but characteristics. And so the idea is that you're a one-woman man and a characteristic that describes you as that. And so the question often comes up about divorce and remarriage and and our role of deacons and role of elders. It's the same word uh, referring to both deacons and elders. Uh, And I would say that in the questions of our deacons, what comes up is that it's not necessarily are they a one-woman type of man because many of these men are in their characteristics, but are they blameless would we have difficulty inviting families of a community of their previous marriage to our church? Could we win them? 
uh, to the Lord? Or would there be barriers because of how that marriage is in that community or how that past marriage is in the community? And that is the larger question uh, that I bring to the deacons that I think comes from the text. There are many of you uh, who have other marriages in the back and divorce, and you are godly men. And I would commend you for that, that you are pursuing a one-woman type of relationship, and in many ways you're exemplary. And I would say, uh, that is great. And that is not what's going to disqualify you at all from deacons or elders. The question that must be asked is, how did that past marriage end? Why did divorce take place? Is there a blameless thing that can be made right from that? And that is the, the chief question in that. But hear me, it doesn't just speak about divorce, does it? To say that you're a one-woman type of man, that leaders in a church need to be this because of the world we live in, can you see that there's much, many more applications about how we live our life? Elders are not to be flirtatious people. That's not going to be their characteristic, that they are instead marked with faithfulness uh, to their wife. And that's different in this world. And so we keep on reading. It says his children are believers. And I think it's important to connect that with the next phrase. Not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. Now this is a troublesome passage because we think, well, you know, it seems like a child comes to know the Lord because of work of God. Not just because of a father. Uh, God saves people. And that is something that is a consideration. And, and as we look at this, it doesn't just mean ones who are believers, but one who is faithful. The word used for belief is also the word for, that can be used and, and translated faithful. And I think when you compare it with the next phrase, the next phrase is the opposite, isn't it? Not open to the charge of debauchery are in subordination. When you put those two together, it speaks to a, a man who has a children that respect who he is as a father, as a leader, that he is able to win them over being persuasive by his character and by his love and his sacrifice for them. And that's the idea that this child now is faithful to him. And then because the father is a believer and has these attributes, it doesn't become an obstacle to this child becoming a believer. So many children have to overcome their dads to be a believer. The idea is that the elder is to be one that can point in a realm of people who's closest to him to Christ. And how many of you know it's hard to do, isn't it? It's, it's easy when you just meet someone once a week. But when you've got people around you all the time and they see you when you're tired and you're worn out and you're frustrated and you are who you are, selfish sometimes, it's in that moment still that God can work through and change you. And I've often said that if you're not a Christian at home, then, then the gospel is not impacting you. It's, it's at that point where it's most core. First Timothy 3 talks about that the same skills you use in family life you're going to use in church life. Now, let's go to verse 7. We're going to move away from, from the marriage and family to your personality and character. For an overseer 
as God's steward must be above reproach. I'm going to be honest, this phrase more than anything else has just caught my mind this week. To be an elder, and this is something that we've been talking about, that God can call out elders in our church body, is to be a steward for God. Now, have you ever been in charge of something in the place of someone else? It requires a few things. It requires one that you have a love and affection for the person you're stewarding for. Second, it requires a knowledge of their desires. And third, it requires a willingness to submit your desires for their desires. Last uh, weekend, I was able to uh, host. uh, uh, My father was hosting a a table for a a camp, New Life Camp in Raleigh. And it was kind of somewhat of a fundraiser and interest uh, table and and dad said, yeah, I, I can't be there. I, I need you to be there for me. Would you be willing to do that? And I said, sure. I, like, I love New Life Camp. I have no problem doing that. We're free. And so we, we came there. And my job was to host the table. And so I uh, knew most of the folks come to the table. There was one couple I hadn't yet met. And so I came to them. I, I saw their picture. I went right up to them and said, oh, it's so good to see you. I just greeted them and glad you're here. Uh, let me tell you where you're going to be at. And, and this is the table you're going to be sitting at. And they said, well, we're looking for uh, Shannon Scott. He invited us to come. And so I was able to say, well, if you have seen me, you've seen the father. All right. <laughs> if you see the son, you've seen the father. I represent him. And so let me just welcome you and glad you're able to come. And so I was able to follow the, the wishes of, of my dad and the wishes of the camp and, and to, to greet them. Sometimes it's good like that, welcoming like that. And sometimes it's more restrictive. I, this past week I had to be in front of a meeting and I was under authority. And in front of everyone, someone asked if they could have permission to speak up in, in front of this large group. And I couldn't answer. And so I quickly looked to the, the leader and said, is this permissible it is to say i know my restraint of authority and i have to appeal to the one uh to to be able to act and so it requires love and affection for the one to whom you're serving second requires knowledge of their desires and third it requires a willingness to submit your desire for their desire so when you are a steward elder of a church (laughs) We represent God. And that just demands certain characteristics and behaviors. How many of you were in the Army? In the, perhaps maybe in the Marine Corps. And so it's, it's famous. You see this in, on TV and in different times. But they always have the, uh, you know, the, the training week where they break you down. But one of the things, and I don't know if it's really true or not, but shoes. Shoes seem to matter in the army, in your dress apparel. That they are to be shined and polished so that you can see reflection, that there is not to be any marks. And so it is the constant practical things that the authorities are beating into the, uh, the recruits' heads and their actions and their habits to make sure that you wear your shoes a certain way with certain guidelines and is to beat them over the head for them to understand you no longer live by your wishes it doesn't really matter whether you not you like to polish your shoes 
It has no factor whatsoever whether you like doing it or not. Is that is am I exaggerating here, guys? Is this okay? It is to say you are under the authority of the U.S. military, and we expect you to have a certain code of conduct and dress because you now represent the U.S. Army or the Marine Corps. And so you don't wonder why they wear what they wear. You don't wonder why they have a dress sword. I mean, you're going to use that dress sword. I mean, you don't. It, it's just the code of conduct for the Marines. It is what you wear, the dress and, and so the idea is that when you're under authority, there is certain behavior, certain characteristics, because it serves God's interest for you to live that way. What are some of these? An overseer, as God's steward, must be, again, that general phrase, above reproach, and now is applied to your personality and character. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or drunkard or violent or greedy for gain. So those are the negatives. Verse 8 is the positives. This is the opposite of that. I think the arrogant one is the one that catches most of us. It's the one that catches me. I'm just being honest. That is the one... That I can find myself blind to sometimes. And needing repentance and confession. If we're arrogant. We tend to go down a whole array of sins. But just so you know arrogant. And arrogance is antisocial. All sin is antisocial. But here you are, we're called as elders, and we're arrogant. But yet we're serving God, who is worthy of all glory, honor, and power. And we're asking us as leaders to say, can you share some of that with me? That is contrary to God. And what's so amazing is God is who He is. And the Bible is all that declares He is. And, and that without Him nothing exists. And yet God somehow comes in humility to us through Jesus Christ. And that is His way. And it just blows my mind that God does that. How much more should the under-shepherds be, the elders that we are to represent that? It's for this reason. Sometimes I've had tough conversations with members pinpointing various things and lacks of my life. But I go back to this and say, God, you're helping me to be holy, to be humble. You're protecting me from killing myself spiritually. And for that, I thank God. And I thank you. You're not to be quick-tempered. Elders are not to be quick And Just so you know... It's kind of like I'm preaching to myself and you guys are listening in. Um, but it's, it's not just that because these don't just apply to elders, do they? It's not that, okay, the elders don't be quick to temper and everyone else. You're at it, free at it, you know. That, that's not the idea. It's to, to lead the way of which others are to go as well. And so to be quick-tempered. We're working with people. One of the things about marriage that most folks, when they come into marriage counseling and they're 
really frustrated. I just kind of have this moment and tell him, you know, you, have you forgotten you've married a sinner? Don't be surprised when they sin and they sin repeatedly. You married them. You're a sinner too. And so we apply that. And it's hard enough with one person, isn't it? You know, one out of two marriages in divorce, and that's just one sinner. You got families, and you got churches, and we're all sinners. So it is good direction for any person representing God as a leader in that church to not be quick to anger. Because you will be tested. We will be dealing with one another in our sin. And it's a vicious cycle. If one person sins, our reaction is to say, you know, I want the last word. I want to defend myself. And so we defend ourselves. Or we get the last word. And surprisingly, they don't stay there and be quiet. It starts a cycle, doesn't it? Well, then they have to say the last word. They have to defend themselves. And it goes back and forth, back and forth. And somewhere along the way, God says, someone's got to stop the cycle. Aren't you glad God stopped the cycle for us? We love him because he first loved us. And so as elders, we're to be slow to anger, not quick-tempered, to stop the cycle. You see a lot of these in the opposite of, of, of in verse 8, to be, instead of being arrogant, being hospital, instead of uh, being quick-tempered, uh, to be a lover of good and self-controlled, not a drunkard, not a drunkard. So... It just doesn't speak well for the pastor to be drunk. Okay, and I think it's fairly self-explanatory. Uh, I don't think you need much elaboration on that. Um, but that's the idea is that there's not something controlling that person other than the Holy Spirit. Not violent. Again, the way a pastor influences is not by coercion, not by threat of violence. But through the Holy Spirit and the Word of God. Sharing that. Counting on the Lord to work. Not greedy for gain. Pastors should ever endeavor to have God as their God and not something else. Because we're pointing people to God. And so greed speaks against that. That we must have God and. And you name the material. So the opposite of that, verse 8, hospital, to, to welcome people in, to make them feel at home, uh, not just in their house, but as they go through a life, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. And the good news about that is that this is, many of these are the fruit of the Holy Spirit, that the Spirit of God can work this in our life. And so as we read this, we think, you know, God, I don't really think I can do that. No, you can't. I can't. But the God can work this in our life. And then, as we keep on reading, verse 9, there's the third area. The third area, in, a, in our evil world, not only must there be the character in our family and marriage, and the character in our, our personal life, but then there's also devotion to God's word. Verse 9. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught, so that he may be able to give instruction to sound doctrine, and also to rebuke those who contradict it. We live in a world where society is against God's word. Every commercial is against God's 
word. Most of the stories that we see on TV, on the internet, in the books, are, many of them are against God's word, maybe threads of truth here and there. In our own life, we are rebelling against God. So someone needs to know God's word. Someone needs to be personally studying this, reading it, endeavoring to understand it, and applying it to life, and teaching people in a way they can understand. This is where we fit into this. This is where we're fitting out of it. To communicate that. This is not just in large groups, but this is in the personal encounters of life. As we're talking with people here and there, to be able to say, this is what God's word says, and this is what you're saying, and this is how it's different. Can you see the difference? So we, we see that in verse as we keep on reading in verse 10, that there's going to be opposition. In verse 11, the goal is that they would be silenced because they're upsetting whole families by teaching contrary to the Word of God. Teaching the Word of God, rebuking, is not just teaching against heresy. But I've also found that heresy comes from that gap between what we know and what we do. Sometimes, All of us would say, yeah, we know the gospel, we know the word of God, but what we do in practice does not seem to be informed by God's word. So sometimes those elders have to say, you know what, we're we're separating from God's word here. You need to know that, you need to be aware of it, we're being blind to it, can you see that? And rebuke those who contradict. The good news as I read this, and I see the opposition in front of me, is that I am God's steward. And what's so great about God's steward? When you're a steward, whose resources do you use? We use God's resources. His word, his spirit, his conviction, his power, his timing. And we just focus on who God is. And so as we consider this as a church, the question is being brought before us, Elders, really, in our church? Here's what Scripture has to say about that type of person, who they are. They're knowledgeable of the Scriptures and applying the life and they're applying in their personal conduct. If God, if God wants this church to have more than one elder, then God's going to provide it. That's simply it. If there is no provision for other elders, then we're going to follow God's lead on that. But there's a great confidence in knowing that as a church, we've got the resources of the Lord behind us. Jesus is standing in our midst. He holds those stars in his hands. And there's a lamppost. And it'll have Nightdale or Raleigh on it. And we're part of that. We're a part of that. So my prayer is, as we close, is what's done in heaven, let it be done on earth in our church. The good news is Jesus is all these characteristics. He's all these characteristics. And as we read these, you probably find areas you lack in. But grace is there. Forgiveness is there to say, you know, I'm not that. I I don't have that in my life. God is here and he says, I will forgive you. 
and I will help you be that. Will you be that? Do you have a desire to be what Titus 1 says? If you have that desire there, it's because God placed it there. And he's going to be faithful to work it in your life. Let's pray.